0: As I mentioned, uh, praying just now, I marvel at the linkage in God's Word. Uh, Been a student of the Bible for, I don't know, 35 years, something like that, and just kind of scratching the surface. I I keep finding new things, and uh, I love that because it is truly timeless. The message is timeless And it's applicable to us. And it's my prayer this morning that as we go through these things, if you've been a believer for a long time, that that God would just quicken your heart. You could blow the dust off of some of these truths and see them in a fresh way. Because that's his will for us, is that we stay fresh and current with him. If you're not a believer, my prayer is that God would draw you, that he would woo you, that you would see the, the significance of the cross and the power of the resurrection and the fact that he offers a life, not just an event in salvation, but a life that is worth living, and is worth dying to self for, that he would emerge. So as we get into this, I want to go back and we're going to look at some passages in the book of Exodus and in Leviticus, and people kind of go, Leviticus, wow, you're really reaching there, pastor. <laughs> but there's some great stuff in there. And then we're gonna bring it up to the first century and then we're gonna bring it home to today. And then uh, we'll finish the service this morning with coming to the Lord's table, taking communion uh, for those of us who are believers. And I wanna encourage you, if you don't know the Lord this morning, today could very easily be the day of your visitation. Today could be the day of your salvation. And we'll give an opportunity for you to respond to that call at the end of the service. Nobody's going to stand you up or parade you around or anything like that. But simply in the quietness of your heart to either commit for the first time or to recommit your life to Christ. Because this is a special day. Interesting. um, I had a, 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 this is just, this is free. I woke up this morning in an absolute panic. Panic capital P, I had, the, I had preacher dreams last night. <laughs> and my wife has had the flu, and so she was coughing a good deal of the night, and so I was in this light sleep, you know, and, and, and I dreamt that it was today and that it was here and that I had planned to bring my suit down, but I was going to do work before church, so I wore my regular clothes, you know, my scruffy stuff, and, and that I, it became time for the service, and I couldn't find my suit and I went, oh my gosh, I have to go up there in my, in, my, in my street clothes, which I usually do, and nobody cares, right? But then I went, that wasn't the bad part. The bad part was I went to find my Bible, and I couldn't find my Bible. So it's like, okay, this is not working. Nothing's coming together today, and I literally thought it was today, and that I got up in front of the church, and I just kind of went, uh, morning. <laughs> Had nothing to say. So anyway, that probably isn't as striking to you as it was to me, but believe me, when you're pastoring a church, you really want something to say. So, And we have plenty to say this morning. I do have my Bible in my notes, so <laughs> let's get started. When I go back, we're going to start by looking in Exodus chapter 25. Uh, and I want to look at the Ark of the Covenant to start with. You guys have heard of the Ark of the Covenant and perhaps you've read about it in the Bible and and you've seen the significance of it. Well, basically the Ark was a box. It was a wooden box that was covered with gold and it had a lid and the lid was called the mercy seat. So what God did was he told Moses, look, I want you to build a place for me, a dwelling place for me, and that will be called the tabernacle. We see in the Gospel of John, as we've been studying and and learning in the Gospel of John, that Jesus came and tabernacled among men. That's part of what's driving going back to look at the tabernacle, to go look at the Ark of the Covenant today, because there's very significant things that went on in laying out the tabernacle, laying out the Ark of the Covenant back in the book of Exodus, and we're going to look in the book of Leviticus and look at the Day of Atonement in the tabernacle. The instructions that God gave there and how they relate to us. So in, in Exodus 25:10, uh, it says, that, And they shall make an ark of acacia wood, two and a half cubits shall be its, be its length, a cubit and a half its width, and a cubit and a half its height. So about 45 inches long, 27 inches high, 27 inches wide. A box. And so he goes on to tell Moses that he was going to raise up this guy named Bezalel, who he would actually put his Holy Spirit within and anoint him to make this box, that he would have the wisdom and and the artisanship to be able to do this. And he just creates this beautiful ark. Uh, And then... He says he covers the box with gold. The lid is going to be pure gold, but he covers that. He puts rings in the side to put poles in it so the priests can carry it along when they travel. Because Israel is out in the wilderness at this time. They've been delivered from Egypt. They've they've experienced his presence through this pillar of cloud by day and this pillar of fire by night. And yet God wants to be able to talk with the people. He wants to be able to begin now to deal with sin. Because sin separates man from God, always has since Adam, and does until we appropriate the work of God in our lives. It was a partial covering at that time for sin when they went through the day of atonement. The, the, the word atonement in the Bible means covering. So it's a day of covering. It was one day a year when the priests would go and they would offer sacrifices for the sins of the people. So just to catch the background, going back to Exodus now in verse 17 of the same chapter, he says, you'll make a mercy seat of pure gold. Two and a half cubits shall be its length and a cubit and a half its width. So 45 by 27 inches, roughly. Cubits about a foot and a half. And you shall make two cherubim, and pay attention to this, you'll make two cherubim of gold of hammered work. You shall make them at the two ends of the mercy mercy seat. So you've got... This lid, and you're going to have cherubim on each end of this thing. Make one cherub at one end and the other cherub at the other end. You shall make the cherubim at the two ends. of It's one piece of the mercy seat. And the cherubim shall stretch out their wings above, covering the mercy seat with their wings, and they shall face one another. The faces of the cherubim shall be toward the mercy seat. You shall put the mercy seat on top of the ark, and in the ark, you shall put the testimony that I will give to you. Now, what he talks about with the testimony, it's the two tablets with the Ten Commandments, okay? So, understand in the ark, there would be the Ten Commandments. There would also be Aaron's rod that had budded, and that was because they were trying to, you know, they were challenging Aaron as to who was anointed to offer the sacrifices and all that. And God had the guys all lay their rods down and he said, the one whose rod buds will be the one that I've selected. And Aaron's did. And then they put the jar of manna in there. That was the miraculous food that God had given them in the wilderness. Every day they would get up and they would have this food. And on Saturday or on Friday, they would have two days worth because they weren't to work on the Sabbath. So again, just bear with me. This is kind of technical on the front end, but it'll make sense as we go. So, now, looking at the ark, this is an artist model of what's laid out in the Old Testament. Actually, I don't know if you guys remember the Indiana Jones movie. Um, that was actually probably the closest replica I've seen of the ark, the way it was laid out in the Bible. And I think that's this one. But anyway, so you have these two cherubim, one on one side, one on the other side, their wings facing forward, and the faces of these cherubs are looking down on the mercy seat. Very significant, okay? The reason for this is that there were three compartments to the Ark. There's the box itself, the, the, the part where the, the stuff was in, the, the, the tablets of the testimony and the manna and the rod and all that. So that was, the, it was sort of the embodiment of the covenant. And the covenant was law at that time. The next part was the mercy seat where these cherub are facing off one another. And then the next part is above that, and that's where the actual presence of God would come and dwell. And it was not in a body, but it was the only light in the Holy of Holies was the presence of God. So you've got this whole scene here, this, this box, that the presence of God comes and dwells above it. And we'll see as we go along when we get into Leviticus here why that was and why it was significant. So going to Leviticus chapter 16, looking at the day of atonement or Yom Kippur. Verse 1. Now the Lord spoke to Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron when they offered profane fire before the Lord and died. Now this is about Nadab and Abihu. They were a couple of guys, they were the sons of Aaron. They went and they decided that they had a, actually a little bit to drink. And they decided that they were going to go and kind of take matters into their own hands and offer to the Lord. That was a mistake for them because they didn't realize that God is holy and sin separates man from God. God was doing this whole elaborate thing so that he could bridge the gap between him and man so that they would know that he is the one that makes the rules. He's holy. He has to set things in a certain order. And these guys totally profaned that, and they actually were consumed with fire on the spot. He says in verse 2, And the Lord said to Moses, Tell your Aaron, your brother, not to come at just any time into the holy place inside the veil before the mercy seat, which is on the ark, lest he die, for I will appear in the cloud above the mercy seat. So, again, his. I want to give you a visual here. This thing called the tabernacle, go to the next one. All right, could you take the house lights or the stage lights down, Richard? I want to explain this to you. This was a 75 by 150 foot courtyard, and it had this weird looking building in it, a tent. Okay? Now, the tent was 45 feet long, 15 feet high, and 15 feet wide. In it were two compartments. The front compartment was called the holy place. And in it was a brass menorah. Uh, go ahead, and go to the next one. In it was a brass menorah. It's called the table of showbread. There was 12 loaves of bread, one for each tribe of Israel. And this altar of incense and all. And, and then behind that was a seven inch thick veil. That was where the Ark of the Covenant was kept. And the veil separated man from God in that sense. So, the priest offered daily in the front end of this tabernacle, but in the back, once a year, the priest would go in, but not unless, until he followed some very closely prescribed procedures or he was dead. Because God is, again, we, we in Western culture don't really understand holiness. It separates. God is infinitely separate from and above and consumingly pure that's holiness. And as a holy God, sin cannot be in his presence. Well, we know that from the time of Adam and Eve, that sin has been present in the human race. And God's work of redemption has gone from that time to the present day. We're looking at his work in the Old Testament here to bring a covering for sin. We see the completeness of that in Jesus where he eliminates sin. So understand there's this, this veil that separates man from God, from the presence of God, except for one day a year. Now, further on in Israel's history, they went and they the temp- built the temple. You've seen, perhaps, pictures of the Temple Mount in Israel. Well, Solomon built the first temple, and it was all of the dimensions were the same, except they were doubled, except the height was higher. Uh, they went to a huge building, except in Solomon's temple, in the Holy of Holies, the holiest place, the back compartment there, he put two huge cherub. They were 15 feet high and their wings were 15 feet across. One wing touched one side, one wing touched the other side and the Ark of the Covenant was placed between. So the the design in it was that the priest would have a high priest and once a year he would go and he would offer, make an offering for the sins of the people. Verse 3. Thus Aaron alone shall come into the holy place with the blood of a young bull as a sin offering and of a ram as a burn offering. He shall put, the holy, uh, linen, put on the holy linen tunic and the linen trousers on his body, and he shall be girded with a linen sash, and with a linen turban he shall be attired. Now, the priests, when they did their daily work in the holy place, in the front compartment, of the tabernacle, they wore some pretty elaborate robes. They were decorated with pomegranates and bells on the tassels. Uh, They were long flowing deals. They were very ornate. But God says, no, for this day, number one, you're going to go alone. And number two, I want you to take off the ornate and put on these very simple linen garments. The symbolism there that when Jesus, God, took on a body, He came as a simple man. He came to make offering for sin. He came by himself. Only he had the ability to come and to forgive sin. We've been studying in the Gospel of John where we see over and over again the people, they mistake the things that he's doing for the fact that he's Messiah, that he has the ability and the power to forgive sin. And they're just looking to him to do miracles and to do these fancy things that he's doing, which is great. But to stop there is to miss the point. And that's what is happening here. Is Aaron, is, he has to go into the holy place and change literally, change his clothes, wash his body, change his clothes, and get into these very simple garments. Because God always, it's very interesting to me that, you know, when God says, build me an altar in the Old Testament, it's not a big ornate building. It's a pile of rocks because he doesn't want our attention to go towards the thing, he wants our attention to go towards him. And very often we see that that's what God does. So in this, uh, he's basically having Aaron change into these very simple clothes. So he'll put on the holy linen tunic and the linen trousers on his body and he'll be girded with the linen sash and the linen turban, he'll be attired. These are holy garments. Therefore he shall wash his body in water and put them on. And he shall take from the congregation of the children of Israel two kids of the goats as a sin offering and one ram as a burn offering. That's significant. We'll get to that in a minute. Aaron shall offer the bull as a sin offering, which is for himself, and make atonement for himself and for his house. He shall take the two goats and present them before the Lord at the door of the tabernacle of meeting. Then Aaron shall cast lots for the two goats, one lot for the Lord and another lot for the scapegoat. Interesting, that's where we get that word. And Aaron shall bring the goat on which the Lord's lot fell and offer it as a sin offering. But the goat on which the lot fell to be the scapegoat shall be presented alive before the Lord to make atonement upon it and let it go as a scapegoat into the wilderness. So he summarizes the whole process here and now he's going to get into and he's going to develop the details verse 11. And Aaron shall bring the bull of the sin offering, which is for himself, and make atonement for himself and for his house, and shall kill the bull as a sin offering, which is for himself. So here we have sinful man making atonement for the sins of the people. So the first thing that God sees to it has to happen is he has to be cleansed. In order to be able to perform these rites, he has to offer for himself for his family he has to be ceremonially cleansed first we know that that wasn't the case with Jesus but it is here so it's essentially it's sinners ministering to sinners and there would be a humility about this I mean I picture Moses or Aaron going through this and and there just being a real air of humility as he does these things so now he has to go into the holy of holies or the most holy place three times Here's the first verse 12, you know, take a censer full of burning coals of fire from the altar before the Lord and his hands with his hands full of sweet incense, beaten fine and bring it inside the veil. That's that seven inch veil. He's going to go from the holy place to the holy of holies now. And he's going to take the censer with coals and incense. And he'll put the incense on the fire before, uh, before the Lord that the cloud of incense may cover the mercy seat that is on the testimony, lest he die. Okay, again, dealing with a holy God here. Dealing with a God that is very demanding when it comes. And you know, when you look at the tabernacle in gen- general, you go in the front of this 150-foot courtyard, and the first thing you come to is a brass, laver, a brass uh, altar, a brazen altar, That's where they did the sacrifices. And then you come to a a, a laver where they would wash. And then you come to the door, you go into the holy place, and then to the holy of holies. It gets more dangerous as they go because they're coming closer and closer to the presence of God. And sin has not been dealt with. They didn't have the cross back then. So this is God's provision to bring man into a place where his sins could be dealt with. Understand, we don't have that today. This is 3,500 years ago, folks. Praise God we don't. Simple faith in Christ is all that's required. And we'll look at how these things connect as we go. I know I'm taking a lot of time to lay this out, but I want to just ask you, bear with me. This is technical. There's a lot of stuff here, but we'll get to the point here as we go along. And I think you'll see some things that are pretty amazing. At least I think they are. So... The next slide, we, we, I just have a deal I found that shows the priest with this, this censer offering the incense, okay? Incense is symbolic in the scripture for prayer. It's also, this is what he would bring in as the, the Shekinah glory, the presence of God showed up. Understand the application here, folks. What is it that carries us into the presence of God? prayer. I don't know if you're a person of prayer, if you are a person that's devoted to prayer. But I've shared, if you come here often, you've heard over and over again, prayer moves things in the spiritual realm. There's a mystery in prayer because God doesn't need our prayers. He wants our prayers. And he says, if you pray, I'll do it. He says, in James, he says, you don't have because you don't ask. And when you do ask, you ask with bad motives. The point is, he wants us to pray. And this, the, the incense coming in, he says, you know, the incense is going to kind of smoke up the room. The only light in the Holy of Holies was the glory of God. And that as God showed up, and this was being carried out to the T, man wasn't destroyed. Because he's still, he's already cleansed himself, remember. So now he's coming in and he's actually beginning to do these atoning uh, rites that God had commanded. So, the second time in verse 14 that he he comes in, he says, he'll take some of the blood of the bull and sprinkle it with his finger on the mercy seat on the east side. And before the mercy seat, he shall sprinkle some of the blood with his finger seven times. So, he first goes in, he offers the incense, and then he comes in with the, the blood of the bull, which is for he and his family. He comes in and he, is supposed, he dips his finger in the blood, and then he sprinkles the mercy seat, the top of this mercy seat. And then he's instructed to sprinkle the blood seven times in, in front of the mercy seat. And so that's the second time that he comes in. The third time in verse 15, and then he'll kill the goat of the sin offering, which is for the people, and bring his blood inside the veil and do with that blood as he did with the blood of the bull and sprinkle it on the mercy seat and before the mercy seat seven times. So he shall make atonement for the holy place because of the uncleanness of the children of Israel because of their transgressions for all their sins. And so he shall do for the tabernacle of meeting, which remains among the midst of their uncleanness. He had to go alone. He had to atone for himself and for his household. And then he offered atonement for the sins of the people, for the children of Israel. We're going to skip down to verse 20. And when he had made an end of atoning for the holy place and the tabernacle of meeting and the altar, he shall bring the live goat. This is significant. Aaron shall lay both of his hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it all of the iniquities of the children of Israel and all their transgressions concerning all of their sins, putting them onto the head of the goat and shall send it away into the wilderness by the hand of a suitable man. Verse 22, the goat shall bear on itself all their iniquities to an uninhabited land and he shall release the goat into the wilderness. So we have here two goats. One gets to live, one has to die. These are shadows in the Old Testament that are fulfilled in the New Testament. This particular shadow speaks directly to the crucifixion and the resurrection of Christ. Think about it. Jesus is the perfect man. He's the God-man, fully God, fully man. That he hadn't come at this time didn't mean that God didn't want to make provision for his people, but these are a partial fulfillment. What happened as they killed the one lamb was that was for the sins of the people to atone to bring atonement means at one to bring two parties together that's what atonement is and in, in a partial sense here but one lamb lives one lamb dies the one dies for the sins of the people the other bears the sins of the people away understand that's exactly what Jesus did He hung on that cross. He died for our sins. Past, present, future, every thought, word, and deed, because the largest definition of sin is things that you think, say, or do that are short of the glory of God. And we don't get far into any day, pick pick any day, not even looking at a week, but just a day. How far do you get into your day before you fall short of the glory of God? It doesn't take much. So with this, we see a picture that's fulfilled in Christ as the perfect man, God-man, that he died for our sins and he also bore our sins away. In that sense, he is the scapegoat. He is the Lamb of God and he is the one who bore the sins away. He closed the gap between God and man forever. I want to move forward now to the first century and I want to look at the crucifixion and we'll take a couple of minutes here in Luke chapter 23 verse 44. Now it was about the sixth hour and there was darkness over all the earth until the ninth hour. Remember last week when we looked at the triumphal entry and Uh, We looked at the day of selection and and the people were to select the lamb and then spend four days selecting it and then the next day they would sacrifice it and they would kill it at twilight for the Passover. Uh, Passover was celebrated, I think, last night uh, for the Jews. Jesus is our Passover. If you look on the bulletin, I have a a little deal on the the, um, uh, perspective thing down in the bottom right it talks about Jesus being our Passover. And he was sacrificed at twilight. Twilight is at three o'clock in the afternoon. Okay. It says here that there was darkness over the earth until the ninth hour. The ninth hour, you guys remember, if we, you've been here, talk about Jewish days. They're separated into 12 equal parts from sun up to sun down. So 6 p.m. is the 12th hour. 6 a.m. is like the first part of the day. Noon is six. the sixth hour. Three o'clock is the ninth hour. So he says here at the ninth hour, fulfilling the prophecy going all the way back to Exodus 12 we were in last week, we see this prophecy fulfilled as to when Jesus, the Lamb of God, was sacrificed. It says, and the veil of the temple was torn in two. Now remember, we looked at the tabernacle. There was that seven-inch thick veil there and that was what separated man from God because our sin separates us from God except for on the Day of Atonement. And when Jesus hung on that cross, the veil was torn. Matthew's gospel tells us the veil was torn from the top down, signifying it was God's work, not man's. Signifying also that no longer was there a barrier between God and man, but now full free access is granted to God from man when man is wearing the righteousness of Christ, when man has come and done business with Jesus. I know these are technical things, but they're, they're absolute foundational truths in understanding what this thing is called Christianity. We don't have to worry about bulls and goats. We, that's not part of it. We'll talk about that as we wrap up this morning. But the point of this is, is that when Jesus hung on that cross, the veil was torn. Full access to God is now available. It says that we can call, and in Hebrews it says, we can boldly approach his throne of grace. Praise God. There is no veil, there's no separation for those who have put their trust in Christ. And when Jesus had cried out with a loud voice, he said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. Prior to this, Matthew's Gospel tells us that Jesus cried out, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We don't understand it, folks. I'm not going to pretend to. But at that moment, as Jesus hung on that cross, before he gave up his spirit, there was some sort of a tearing in God himself as the Father turned his back on the Son, as he placed the sins of humanity on him, as Jesus wore our sins. Yes, your sins, my sins. That Jesus was all alone for the very first time in his entire life. He had enjoyed fellowship with the Father from birth. From birth. And now the agony of being completely separated from the Father. I believe, folks, Jesus, I mean, he had been flogged to where his back had been laid open, absolutely laid open, raw meat. I'm not trying to be overly graphic, but it was graphic. The, the pictures you see have been airbrushed. It was horrible. It was wretched. The crown of thorns would have pierced his, his brow and pierced his head. The nails driven into his hands and into his feet. Sin is wretched. This, the animal sacrifices were wretched. Wretched. To sit there and watch the blood of this bull or this lamb or this goat flow out of it and watch its eyes go dark was a horrible sight. But we tend to gloss over sin and think, oh, well, you know, it's just a little lie. I'll tell you, the Bible proclaims that liars and murderers are thrown into the lake of fire because it doesn't matter how small the sin, it separates us from God. And then comes Jesus. Wearing your sin, wearing my sin. That all I have to do is put my faith in him. All I have to do is say, you know, Lord, I'm sorry for the life I've led because I know that that life, if I was the only person ever born, would have been enough to put you on that cross. And now I'm gonna take the salvation that you offer. I'm gonna take the hand that you outstretched to me And I want to live for you. I want to live a life that's above the cut. I want to live a life that's in fellowship with you because you died to offer that. Yes, eternity in his presence. Heaven is guaranteed. But a life here that is absolutely amazing. And he did it for you. He did it for me. going to move on to John chapter 20 and take a look at the resurrection. In John chapter 20, Mary goes alone. She gets up on Sunday morning. She goes alone to the tomb. And she sees that the stone has been rolled away. And she panics. She turns around, she runs back, and she gets John and Peter. And says, they've taken the Lord's body. I don't know. They've they've taken it. They've stolen it. And they come running back and they come and they look in the tomb and they see that it's indeed empty. And then they leave. They go back home or to where they were lodging. And Mary is alone in front of the tomb. This is Mary Magdalene. Verse 11. But Mary stood outside of the tomb weeping and as she wept she stooped down and looked into the tomb and she saw two angels in white sitting one at the head and the, at the other at the feet where the body of Jesus had lain. And they said to her, woman, why are you weeping? And she said to them, because you've taken away my Lord and I don't know where they have laid him. She doesn't really have time to process the scene because it, it and I, I don't have it, it, it as far as the slides up here goes, but it goes on that at that moment, she was startled. She turned around and Jesus was standing there, but she didn't recognize him. She thought he was the gardener. And she said, hey, you know, if, if you're the one who took the body, would you bring it back? I'll take it. Please, sir. She, she asked him nicely. To, and then he says, Mary. And her eyes are open. And she recognizes it's the Lord. And the next thing you see is Jesus is saying, don't stop clinging to me. I haven't ascended to the Father. Because Mary, I mean, again, this is a frenetic scene. This is a hectic scene. She's she's figured out that Jesus is gone. She doesn't realize that he's risen from the dead. She's gone and gotten the guys. They've come back and confirmed it. And she's standing there crying. She looks in the tomb. There's two angels. One at the head, one at the foot of where Jesus' body had been. Doesn't process the significance. But I'll tell you what, there are glimpses in God's word that are very significant, and this is one of them. Think about it. The mercy seat. An angel on one end, an angel on the other. The blood of the covenant sprinkled there between, their faces looking down. The presence of God, the embodiment of the covenant, there on that stone slab it would have been blood stained it would have been empty since that his clothes his grave clothes had been folded up there I would submit to you that for a moment that tomb became the mercy seat of God it's interesting Air Force One watching a program about Air Force One not too long ago, and they were talking about the planes that the president uses. And they said, you know, that plane is just a plane until the president steps on board. The moment he steps on board, it is declared Air Force One. Same thing with Marine One when he steps on the helicopter there at the White House lawn. It's just a helicopter. It's just a plane until the president's presence is there. The tabernacle the Ark of the Covenant was just a box until, the, pres- until the, the, the Lord's presence appeared. And then it was the embodiment of the covenant. And then it was the presence of God represented to man. The priests sprinkled the blood seven times when he came in and made atonement for the sins of the people. Jesus bled first from his head with the thorns. Second, his right hand. Third, his left hand from being pierced with the nails. Fourth, from the spear wound in his wound in his side when the soldiers had pierced him to confirm that he was dead. Fifth, from his back from the Roman scourging. Sixth from his left foot and seventh from his right foot. Seven points of contact Jesus' blood would have had on that mercy seat. It didn't stay the mercy seat because he rose. He is now the tabernacle of God. We're told in Hebrews chapter 9 that Christ came, in, in verse 11, that Christ came as high priest of the good things to come with the greater and more perfect tabernacle not made with hands. That is, not of this creation. Not with the blood of goats and calves, but with his own blood he entered the most holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. For if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling the unclean sanctifies for the purifying of the flesh... How much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without spot to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve a living God? Folks, the things that happened 35 years ago that God prescribed in the Old Covenant were a shadow and a picture, a very clear picture that was completed and filled in. It was as though he drew the drawing and then he painted it in with Christ. And when we look at this account, we look at the day of atonement, the day that the sins of the people were atoned for. It's a picture. It's a shadow of the fulfillment that we enjoy, and I mean enjoy in Christ. No longer does a priest have to go in once a year and atone for himself and then for the people because we have a perfect high priest who went in through the veil and offered himself. That's what we look at on Easter. That's what we celebrate on Resurrection Sunday. We don't have to go in and do these perpetual over and over again sacrifices. We don't have to have one goat that lives and one goat that dies, and the goat that dies dies for our sins, and the goat that lives is the one that carries our sins off into the wilderness. Jesus fulfilled all of that. what a glorious thing i want to encourage you think about the things that we're talking about this morning because here we are 2000 years after that empty tomb looking back on that looking back 1500 years before that and seeing the plan of god perfectly fulfilled perfectly fulfilled I'm convinced that God allows these things to come forward in the scripture so that they can be an encouragement to us. You can't plan this stuff out. Jesus fulfilled so many, he fulfilled in his lifetime, he fulfilled over 300 prophecies. By his birth, through his life, and by his death, the prophetic word was completed, was fulfilled in that sense. And we still live in an, in an age where, There is yet prophecy to be fulfilled. I've mentioned it before, I'll say it again. If you you have given your life to Christ, you need to see your life as being tucked into the pages of this book. You need to see your life as being part of God's plan of redemption for this planet. Anything short is to have a short view of who he is and what he's up to because he doesn't stop with the empty tomb. He continues to draw people to himself. Last week we looked at as Jesus came over the top of the hill and he looked down on the temple mount and he said, and he wept over the city and he said, if you had only known this, the day of your visitation. They rejected and the city was destroyed. Again, a picture of his beckoning to each individual. As he reaches out and stretches his hand out to us, he wants to work in our lives. If you belong to him this morning and you're going through trials, these things illustrate to me the fact that he's got it. I don't have to worry. I don't have to be so bound up with stress. If he could plan these things out for millennia, How big are the things that I'm dealing with today? If he would go to that cross for me, what kind of gratitude should I have in my heart towards him today? Because he does live. Yes, we love to say he is risen, and the response is he is risen indeed. And yet, I don't ever want that to become a ritual in my life. I want to live in that reality. As we get ready to come to the Lord's table this morning, I want to invite you to consider Jesus. Consider him in your life. His faithfulness. I love, it was at Psalm 39, his loving kindness is everlasting. Over and over and over again, it's stated there. It was because of his love for man that he implemented the tabernacle and the Ark of the Covenant and the Day of Atonement as a shadow. It's because of his love for man, his love for me, his love for you, that Jesus came and lived a life that counted. But he knew the entire time that he ministered that three and a half years on this earth that he was headed for the cross. But the cross couldn't hold him. Death couldn't hold him because he lived a life of perfect satisfaction to the Father. That anyone who would simply come and put faith in him and trust that one fact would live forever and not just have life, but that more abundantly, the Bible tells us. We have much to rejoice in this morning, folks. As we come to the Lord's table, I wanna just give you a little bit of, uh, could the guys come up and pass out the elements, please? As we come to the Lord's table, I I just want to um, encourage you to to think about some things. As the guys pass out the elements, let's just bow our heads and our hearts before the Lord. If you don't belong to Jesus this morning, there is no shame in not taking the elements. As a matter of fact, we're cautioned not to. This is a family thing. And yet I want to encourage you, give your life to Christ and you don't have to worry about it. Let this be the day of your visitation. Let this be the time where you turn your back on the old life and you say yes to Jesus. Because if that's what you're doing, I want you to take communion for the first time and to rejoice in it. If that's not where you're at, that's fine. We respect that and we love you. But if it is, Let this be the day. Communion is a time where we celebrate. It's a reset, in a sense. Jesus said to do it often, to remember him. There at the Last Supper, when he implemented this He said, do it often in remembrance of me. It's a time where we do business with God. It's a time where we come before him and perhaps consider the things in our lives since the last time we took it. Or we consider the things in our lives as we take it for the first time. He is the God he claims to be. His love is poured out. He loves us with a love that is unimaginable. And yet, he went to the cross. He wore our sins. He rose from the dead that he could pour his love out on us in tangible, personal ways. It doesn't just stop with salvation. As I mentioned, there's a life because the Holy Spirit of God himself comes flooding into a person's soul. And he begins to take up residence inside of us the temple of God now, the dwelling place of God. That's the church. It's no longer in a tent, it's no longer in a box or over the top of it, but it's in the people of God. Directing the path of our lives, giving us a peace that we have not known until now, giving us the assurance of heaven, eternity in his presence. Jesus knew that by the next day he would be on the cross when he instituted communion, the Lord's table, at the Last Supper. We're told uh, in Luke 22 that he took bread and he gave thanks and he broke it and he gave it to them saying, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. The Bible tells us that Jesus became sin, that we could become the righteousness of God. That's what we rejoice in this morning. Let's take the bread. Likewise, he took the cup also after supper saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood which is shed for you. Sin requires sacrifice. There's no remission of sins without the shedding of blood is what the Bible tells us. And when Jesus implemented this first communion, he knew that his blood was about to be shed for the sins of humanity that would pave the way for any who would come. What a glorious thing that he signed up for this. When they went to arrest him in the garden, Judas came and betrayed him with a kiss. And he said, whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus, the Nazarene. And he said, he used the covenant name for God there. He said, I am. And a whole Roman garrison fell over, landed on their behinds. Essentially what he was doing in that was he was essentially offering his rest and saying, go ahead and arrest me. You're not taking me by force. I signed up for this. He knew that his blood would be shed, but he knew that it was for the sins of the world. He knew that it was the day of atonement unlike any other. Let's take the cup. Let's pray. Father, what a wonderful day this is as we consider the atoning work of Jesus. Dying for our sins, bearing our sins away, laying in that tomb, seeing the mercy seat, the fulfillment of all that had been spoken before. Yes, this is an important day, Lord, and we acknowledge that. Thank you just doesn't seem enough, and yet our hearts are grateful for the work that you've done in drawing us to yourself, the work that you're doing in working in our hearts and our lives and the work that you're yet to do. Lord, may our hearts be yielded to you. May we be people who are sold out wall to wall for Jesus. In the days ahead, Father, as you work and as you move, let us have confidence as we boldly approach your throne of grace, knowing that you've done that for us. Not only that, but that your presence is offered and accepted, and and that as you have taken up residence inside of us, that we would simply be people who are yielded to the working of your Holy Spirit. Thank you, Lord, for this wonderful day, this day that we celebrate the resurrection. May we be people who are set apart. May we be people who enjoy the work that you're doing. And may we be people that are a light in a really dark world. We praise you now and we, we, we love you with all of our hearts and commit the rest of this day to you. In Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. amen. May the Lord bless you and keep you and make his face to shine upon you and give you peace. Have a blessed day.